Welcome to Living the Dream Outdoors, the official podcast of Living the Dream Outdoor Properties. We live by the motto, it's not just land, it's a lifestyle. And we live the outdoor lifestyle every day. Whether you're a landowner or dreaming of joining the ranks of those closest to the earth, we're your brothers and sisters of the outdoors. We hunt, we fish, we're stewards of the land, and our Living the Dream team will show you the way to enjoying the land and all the outdoor pursuits it has to offer. Here's your host, Bill Cooper. Welcome to Living the Dream Outdoor Podcast. I'm your host, Bill Cooper, and I am Tickle Pink this week. I've been over at Blue Bank Resort on Real Foot Lake in Tennessee. This is a media event, a crappie event, and man, it's been cold and blustery, but the guys have still been catching some pretty nice crappie. But one of the reasons I attend media camp is just the opportunities that it brings to meet new people. And I've kind of buddied up with a gentleman by the name of Ken McBroom. He has Rambling Angler Outdoors, and he's out of Benton, Kentucky. He's also an outdoor writer, a photojournalist, boy, a website designer. This guy's kind of the jack of all trades when it comes to the outdoors. Well, Ken, man, it's been a pleasure to talk to you today. And uh, uh, we've had a pretty good day today, but you've got an intriguing story. You know, I'm 74 years old, been in the outdoor industry for 53 years, and I've come across a lot of people in my lifetime and some just kind of seem to stand out have a bubbly personality interesting looking character uh, talking to you today I've, I've heard some tremendous stories i've often wondered why guys like you don't write books <laughs> <laughs> i'm working on one work there you go so how did you get started in the outdoor industry well really it, it, i started with the outdoors itself and uh for years and years and years, I uh, fished and hunted alone, really, and enjoyed that. Uh, and after I got a little older, I, d- I started learning that I wanted to show other people what I experienced all those years. I really believe that I owed it back to the outdoors. And I was laying on a bank in Alaska fly fishing, <laughs> and the grass was blowing and a, a flock of ducks flew up, and I'd never heard the sound of 30 or 40 ducks oh, that's head high. Cool. And I, I thought, wow, that is so awesome. How can I tell people about this? <laughs> and I said, I'm going to start writing. And I'd done a little writing here and there in, in high school, silly stories, and I like doing that. But but at that moment when I decided, you know, I've been enjoying this, and outdoors have given me so much, I really – believe i should start sharing it i'm at the age now that and i was only about 40 then but uh i started writing articles and really i like fiction but i started writing magazine articles to show people and and it's really developed from there from people uh, i found out that a lot of people want to know what i'm telling and what i know and experienced and it feels good to share that with people and so it's actually feeling even more and more like me wanting to write uh outdoor articles hey uh, that's a great start man and i've heard a lot of similar stories like that and like say i've I've been in this industry for over five decades and it's always inspiring to me to hear people tell stories like this 
they have a base for their inspiration. Something started them. You had a lot of experience on your belt before you started writing. Well, I've seen a number of riders, particularly outdoor riders, over the decades that get the cart before the horse. You know, they want to become an outdoor rider. They don't have any experience to speak of. Yeah. So, by and large, the greater outdoor riders I've run into in my lifetime have had that base of experience. Well, I've heard... We've just talked up a storm today and shared a lot of information between us and talking to other people in the, in the process, And but your story kept sticking in my mind, and uh, I'm kind of intrigued. You've, you've had quite an adventurous lifetime. I know you spent some time in the military, and uh, you didn't start riding until you were 40 years old. You're uh, not much older than that now. Well, I really, I may have been 30 30, around 30. Yeah. It, time flies. But um, I've actually wanted to write, I believe, since I was real little. Um, I used to sit with a uh, notebook, spiral notebook, and I didn't even know how to write. I remember filling up the front and back page of every page in there like I was writing. Now, what inspired that? So, well, um, we went without a TV and a telephone for years when I was younger, partly because I was poor, partly for other reasons, and partly because we got used to it and didn't want it. We listened to stories on the radio, and we read. And my mom taught me how to read with the children's Bible. So it had pictures, and I'd right. look at the pictures. She'd read to me, and that's how I learned to read. That's awesome. And then I just loved books. I've collected books and old magazines. So the, the the inspiration comes from that youth, and it just took a while to get it going because I was having so much fun fishing and hunting in Didn't Alaska. Didn't have time to write. Well, yeah, and I had a good job. You know, I was doing right. all right, and I just I wrote fiction. I wrote a lot of fiction stuff. Really? And, um, just decided to write for magazines, and and that's how I got started. I haven't looked back. But it's interesting, though, that you had, had a mother that cared enough to teach you to read in out of a picture Bible like that. I, I've got a similar story. We were so poor, too. I was raised across the river from you over in Mississippi <laughs> County, Missouri, down in the Cypress Swamps. And we had uh, I always said Mom kept two good sources of reading in the house. One was the Bible, and the other was Reader's Digest. And I love to tell the story of wore that Reader's Digest out. Now, my mom's 95 years old today, and she still boxes my ears just she finds out I haven't been reading my Bible. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But great inspiration, and I think a lot of it, you know, come uh, for both of us through the fact that, hey, we did have limited resources, and we took advantage of what we did have, and it was fascinating to read. I, I grew up reading Jack O'Connor and some of those guys, you know, and I can remember, boy, I want thinking, I want to grow up, and I want to do what Jack O'Connor's done, have these adventures and all that sort of thing. And I would have never dreamed in my life that I would ever get to do the things that I've done, you know, travel from Alaska to the Yucatan and met a ton of incredible people just like yourself over the decades. And here we are sitting at Blue Bank Resort in a motel room recording a podcast right. talking about the things that we love most in our life well who were some of the inspirational writers in your lifetime that affected you um i'd say in the in the beginning it was a lot of the adventure novels i read even when i was a kid robinson crusoe moby dick all of those and, <laughs> and i actually read them you know and I, I couldn't wait for the book fair and uh my mom would find a few dollars for me to buy a book i always had to get a book it was usually conan the barbarian <laughs> 
But uh, <laughs> so so later in life, uh, I pretty much started just reading outdoor fishing, hunting. One of the guys, uh, John Garak, is definitely one that pushed me over because he could write about a coffee pot and <laughs> yeah. make you uh, hear the perkin on the Absolutely. side of the stream. But another uh, man that a lot of people don't realize uh, wrote a lot about the outdoors and fishing in particular. He did lasso cougars, but is Zane Gray. <laughs> and most people know him from his westerns, but right. I've read I've his fishing stuff. Yeah, and, uh, I've never read any of his westerns, but I've read all of his fishing and and, and adventure books. You know, more uh, nonfiction things that Zane Gray put out, and and I'd say he helped me a lot. But I want to give a lot of credit to my mom. She's a, a was a single mom. My dad left when I was pretty young, and she kept the fire burning. I right. tell you, she took me hunting, took me to the really? boat ramps to fish. She knew how much I loved it, and if she hadn't done that, I just don't know. How much it would have stayed with me, but it stayed with me long enough. I got to move to Lynchburg, Tennessee, where I loved, and the best thing ever happened to me, where I could roam and hunt and fish all I wanted there. Wow, that's an incredible story, and I had a very similar story there in the swamps of southeast Missouri, because we had had a cotton farm, we had a bio that ran through the farm, you know, and back in those days, you know, you knew all the neighbors, and it was like there wasn't any boundaries, you know. We had our little 40 acres. I even remember some of those days. Yeah. (laughs) Bird hunting. Oh, yeah, we bird hunting, squirrel hunting, coon hunting, fished up and down that bio, and I didn't have to worry about calling a neighbor, you know. They saw us on the place. They knew who we were, and I usually had an old dog with me, you know, and we were just known around the neighborhood, vice versa, you know. Kids had come over on our place because we had a good access to the bio, and we'd all fish and have a good time together, and we just had lots of great adventures. I probably shouldn't even tell some of them because my mom might hear it, might yeah. beat, me, beat me yet, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but in the springtime, our place would flood up from the Mississippi River, and the local boys, we'd get together, and none of us could really swim good, but we'd make a raft out of poles, you know, just a few inches around, wire it together, throw bailing wire or something push off into that slow current might float 10 or 15 miles in a day's time hit a bank somewhere <laughs> abandon that raft and walk home yeah nobody know? doing that today unfortunately i don't really, think but, so uh-uh. you know but hey we had some wild times did some great things but uh in our minds anyway but it was big adventure but you know i'm 74 years old today and i still like adventure to a point and that, that's one reason i'm still coming down here to this media camp at uh, blue bank uh, resort and what a good time what a lot of grand people but your career has uh, made some different turns for you at one point you were in alaska for a period of years yeah i worked in alaska in the bush for 20 years uh, as a helicopter mechanic but the good thing about it the helicopter left in the morning and didn't come back till the evening. So I, <laughs> I fly fished every day if I wanted to. Oh, my and goodness. And I fly fished uh, rivers and streams that don't even have any names uh, in Alaska. There's a lot of rivers and streams. But uh, so I got to fish some great places and locations that a lot of people never, will never see, really. And, uh, right. And that was, yeah, that was a, and you got a lot of time too, you know, you go fly fishing for five or six hours and come back and write and read and yeah, there's a lot of time there to think, you know, and uh, that's kind of where my writing started, you know, getting going and uh, so I started writing there in in a tent in Chicken, Alaska. That's where the first thing I wrote as a writer, I decided to be a writer. That was the first place was in a tent in Chicken, Alaska. A tent. 
Yep. Wow. I was living in a tent, actually. Right. It was a nice tent, but yeah. <laughs> it was a tent. It was a tent. Not not too many people can claim that kind of fame, I don't, <laughs> I don't think. But uh, in the course of your writing career, you've had over 1,000 articles published. Where where'd yep. those articles go to? Uh, Midwest Outdoors. Uh, I have one in uh, Fur Fishing Game, and a great thing, it was about my grandfather and him taking me fishing, so it was a great honor because I always wanted to be published in Fur Fishing Game, even before I knew I could possibly be. Right. Um, and then I, my first query to them, they accepted. And it really? was about my grandfather taking me fishing as a kid. And he used, it was about a crystal minnow bucket. And he got a minnow bucket from his neighbor and a broom handle. And <laughs> I didn't know what it was. I was six, seven years old. But if the crappie weren't on the bank... He would take that broom handle and a tow sack out of that minnow bucket and stare in that minnow bucket and put that broom handle in the water. And even back then, he would point that transducer was on the end of that broom handle. And he would find brush piles. Well, I didn't know that for years. I didn't know what it was. And he would look in that minnow bucket, and when he saw a brush pile, he would spit a water red man out in the (laughs) – Percy Priest Lake, and that was my cue that he found a brush pile. He would say, drop it here, Ken, but my jig was halfway to the bottom by then because I knew when he spit, because uh, he never spit when he was looking for them crappie. He spit and told me to drop the jig, and we caught crappie on Percy Priest that way. And uh, I was introduced to forward-facing sonar when I was seven years old with a flasher unit, really. That, that's an incredible story. <laughs> is, is your grandfather still alive? No. No, of no course he passed not. away. Well, I'm sure he would be thrilled to death to, today if he knew what you've done with your life. Yeah, I've been told that. Uh, and he, he, he was a veteran, too, and he was pretty proud of me just from that aspect. And Oh, I, I'm certain my dad was a World War II veteran, and he couldn't believe it when I became an officer in the U.S. Army. In fact, funny story about that. He came, uh, when I got commissioned, he came to the ceremony. And, uh, officers, you know, we had the, uh, uh, it was a tradition. You'd flip a silver dollar to a sergeant that had trained, you know. My dad's standing there. I didn't like that sergeant. He didn't like me either, you know. And gave me a really rough time, but still had to salute me and call me sir. I flipped that silver dollar for him, <laughs> and my father reached out and grabbed it, caught that silver dollar, and stuck it in his pocket. He said, I understand you were mean to my son. He said, things might be turned around now. <laughs> we all laughed about it. you know. Yeah. Of course, never saw that sergeant again. I think we were both happy about about that. Kid, I tell you, tell you what, man, time flies. You're having fun. Some great stories, folks. But don't go away because I'm going to keep this guy around for a little bit. In fact, he's going to be a new sponsor for us here on Living the Dream Outdoor uh, podcast. And he's got some great products that we're going to talk about in this second segment. We'll be right back. Hi, I'm Steve Stoltz with Drury Outdoors, and you're listening to Living the Dream Outdoors podcast with Phil Cooper and Hunter Heineman. Slow down and enjoy the simple things in life. Welcome to Huzal Valley Resort, providing family fun since 1979. They offer floating, and you can choose from canoes, rafts, kayaks, and inner tubes on a beautiful, crystal clear 
Uzal River. Lodging, let us be your home away from home. Choose from a variety of lodging units while still enjoying the great outdoors. With over two and a half miles of river camping on the crystal clear Huzal, we're sure you and your family will find the perfect spot to pitch your tent or park your RV. Have fun and let us help you get the most of your stay. Check out our guided trail rides and Karen's Cafe menu. There's something for everyone at Who's All. There's a campground store on site that has everything you need for your trip. Whether you're in need of gear, grub, or something else, chances are they've got it. And their campground has RV sites and primitive sites for all your camping needs. If you like the adventures of camping with a cozy bed at night, we have a variety of different lodging units to choose from. But Who's All Valley, there's always something going on out there. Check them out on Facebook, or if you want to make a reservation, simply call 1-800-367-4516. Hi, I'm Steve Stoltz, original Fury Outdoors team member and cast member of DeerCast. And we're talking about hunting big whitetails early season. We're here in September, and if you're not hunting, you need to be scouting and getting ready. Uh, uh, my tip here is this. You have to make sure you have an escape as much as an approach, a proper approach, because I do not hunt big whitetails in the mornings early season. That's just me. I, I believe you're doing more harm than good. Uh, and the reason why is those big mature whitetails, again, are not traveling very far at all uh, from their feed. So, if you're seeing them come out, you can almost bet the farm they're not bedded far from that spot. It's the same theory I always get a kick out of trail camera users and how they how they, how they approach uh, disturbance with that deer. If you're getting pictures of a big whitetail and a, a big mature whitetail, that deer is probably bedded within a hundred yards of that of that trail camera. And, and, and if, if, if he's not, you need to treat it as if he is. And then you'll keep the disturbance down. So just remember that. Uh, but the same way with, with big whitetails, uh, hunting them in early season right now. And that is you have to make sure that when they do come out and you don't get a shot, that you're able to get out of there without disturbing that deer. So you've got to take a lot of time in figuring out not only an entrance plan, which is usually pretty easy because they're bedded when you go get in your stand, but an exit plan. And that exit plan, if that is not, if that's not orchestrated correctly, so think of this, then the first time you hunt that deer, and if you, if you don't get them killed, you're probably not going to see him again because when you leave that stand, you're going to make him aware he's being hunted. So take that in consideration when you're setting up to hunt a whitetail. You might have to give up a little bit of location of where you'd like to be to shoot him for an exit plan and just let him come to you after he comes out. Hi, folks. It's Aaron Jeffries with the Missouri Department of Conservation with a little habitat hint here. Uh, no surprise, uh, we are in the middle of a pretty severe drought across most of mid-Missouri. Uh, would encourage folks to take a look at diversifying their grazing systems. 
Uh, right now, the departments in RCS and other partners do have cost share available for the establishment of native form season grasses for grazing and haying purposes. What a great program. What a wonderful way of diversifying your grazing system and actually having a drought-tolerant, productive grass in the months of June, July, and August. If you're looking for more information, would encourage you go to go to the Missouri Department of Conservation's website at mdc.mo.gov. And in the upper right-hand corner is contacts. Go to your county and find your private land conservationist for your county uh, to set up a meeting to look at ways that you can improve your property, not only for wildlife, but also forage production for your cattle. Hey, everybody, this is Alex Rutledge with American Roots Outdoors. Check out my buddy's podcast show, Living the Dream Outdoors with Bill Cooper and Hunter Hindman. You're really going to enjoy this week's show. Welcome back to Living the Dream Outdoor podcast. I hope you enjoyed that first segment with Ken McBroom. He's uh, the rambling angler outdoors from Benton, Kentucky. You know, man, I just right across the river from where I grew up. Too bad we didn't know each other back then. I know. <laughs> we usually go on separate ways when we're doing all the stuff we've been doing, you know. Oh, exactly. But, uh, man, you've worked... Uh, Gosh, several decades here, I guess, as an outdoor rider, been successful at it. Uh, man, had a lot of great adventures, but you and I both know that, uh, I don't know, I don't know any wealthy outdoor riders, do you? No, 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 not even the good ones. Maybe outdoor riders, no, but yeah, but uh, we're all in it. Because we love the outdoors. The riding is kind of secondary, I guess. But we've discovered, you and I both, that if you're going to survive in this business, uh, you've got to have more than one widget to sell, you know. More than one hustle. Yeah. So we're always looking for something new, different angles. I remember people just wrote about one subject, you know. But to stay in the field, uh, I saw good outdoor riders turning to writing about golf and all sorts of things. But we're always looking for different gigs, and that's one reason we come to these media events. And yep. you and I both have stirred up a little bit of business since we've been <laughs> yep. here, and here we are cooperating together now. But you have some products on on the market, and you can find these on your website, which is what ramblingangler dot com. That's easy enough to remember ramblingangler.com but be sure and check that out folks because i think you'll find some incredible things that and i'm not going to try to explain them because you know <laughs> uh, the owner the inventor they're always the best person to explain any uh product because man you have a keen interest in it <laughs> yeah yeah you do. <laughs> well tell me about the products you got available on that website well i guess i'll start with the harry cricket jig it uh how'd you come up with that name well the name yeah i'm not sure to be honest hairy uh, cricket because of the squirrel tail i use squirrel tail hair there you go and i like hair jigs even for crappie and uh and bass um so but i i tied flies when i was in alaska and built custom fly rods and so i really love tying flies always had and living on kentucky lake now uh i started chasing red ear and shell crackers for those that don't know red ear but uh so i wanted a jig to catch these big red ear and so i came up with the hairy cricket jig 
and it's a winged type jig, mohair body, um, 32nd ounce, and it caught on. A lot of people buy it now all over America, really, and uh, uh, and it got into Florida Sportsman Magazine, and that that writer buys them still today, and he loves them, and he loves the hook because it handles uh, – tilapia they catch down there a lot and uh it's a really strong sickle hook in the jig but uh but i tie a lot of those every year and then i have a bait now called the little toughy that is uh mainly for big crappies what i got it for but i've been catching big uh smallmouth too in fact the first bite i got on this thing was my personal best smallmouth on barkley lake Wow, and, and I said, "Wow, I might be on to something here." They, they really like this, and I've caught catfish, drum, everything on this uh, little toughy. But it's just a swim bait and uh, two and three quarters, and it's catching on. A lot of people like it. I've got five different colors now uh, because I'm not a big color guy, but believe me, everybody wants their color. So, and and a lot of lakes, you know, require it, or they bite better with some color. But um, I like the shad color myself, but. It's a really good bait, and it's selling good. And uh, I think know, it's only going to get better. I got yeah. to see those for the first time just a couple of hours ago, and I, well, I think you probably saw my eyes <laughs> light up because I I have looked and looked for a bait about that size to use, not only for smallmouth, but I I love to trout fish in the Ozarks, and I know where we can use plastics. Those things will be deadly. Describe it to us in a little bit more detail. Um, it's it's a a plastic bait, but it's made uh, a little stronger than most plastic baits. Um, it's got a mylar tube in the center of it. Um, you can use it without a keeper because of the mylar. You'd have to see the bait, and uh, I've got some instructions I send with each order. But um, if you put that hook shank and up through the mylar, um, you're pulling on the strip of mylar inside that bait, and it, and it don't tear. So so the the hook can't move you know through the bait and tear it right and uh i do use a wire keeper i I pour my own jig heads i'll eventually have them in my store i'm still working on it but uh a wire keeper's fine and it will hold it up there but um and then it's got a uh where they put the mylar tube in um they put a tool in there to hold it and it creates a two a hollow tube throughout the body of the bait and they have two little holes that are created from the pin that they put in to hold the mylar while they pour the bait. So I, I, I saw that when I first got it, and I said, wow, that thing, you could put scent up in the body of the bait. And all other things, I've put rattles in there. I've put nail weights, and it's awesome. So I'm working on a scent now, too, for it. And uh, um, it's just a great little bait, and hopefully it'll take off and just, you know, help me out with the, you know, the writing. I, I started doing jigs and, and baits just to fill in the, the voids of the cash flow from oh, writing absolutely. because you have to wait so long for a check to come in. Exactly. And so that's the reason I did it. And I mean, it's work and I feel good about it. You know, I, I didn't want to do it for a long time, but now I go fishing for a reason to promote my own thing. And it feels good, really, uh, to do that. So. Well, I think you're going to see a great deal of success with these baits, particularly when they get in the, the right places and people begin to see them. First place, they're very attractive, and that's very important. To, we hear it. I'm astounded every year at how many baits come out. I look at a lot of them, and I think, 
that's to catch fishermen, not yeah, fish. Yeah. <laughs> well, yours today, when I looked at that, now there's a bait that's <laughs> going to catch fish. And uh, it's a slender minnow-type design with a kicker tail on the back and two and three-quarter inches long. I can uh, remember uh, a bait that came out for Table Rock Lake Chompers years ago, and they were making big baits three and four five inches i think and i actually got a host of the owner and asked him about making a shorter bait about two and a half inches lo and behold they were making them but not selling them in the united states they were all going to japan uh, well he sent me four or five dozen of those things and it was astounding to me what a difference it made just downsizing that thing i took them to canada and caught huge smallmouth on them <laughs> and just had a wonderful time with those but that's what you know as well as i do there's lots of swim baits out there they're all i've seen are chunkier bigger yeah. longer and they're just not what i wanted for ozark stream for both smallmouth and trout uh, rainbow and brown trout both will eat these baits oh, yeah. up and the colors you had were dead on for for trout, you say you're not a color man. Well, I like those uh, designs you had. There was one that was had some orange in it. Now that'll imitate uh, a number of uh, like sculpins, crayfish, yep. and minnows yep. in Ozark streams. And you had a pink, which sometimes pink is just deadly for trout. I mean, deadly. And uh, what are the other colors you had? Chartreuse. Chartreuse. There's another deadly color. And there's color. a blue that's more of a natural. Right, and, and that's because of clear water. Kentucky Lake's got a lot clearer too. Well, a lot and of our clear streams yeah. are clear water, oh, yes. and you know what one of the colors is that trout see best? Blue, <laughs> blue and green. Yeah, and, and then another one's a shad color, just a black back with a, a silvery translucent body. Another great bait for smallmouth, though. Well, I've been catching them on it. <laughs> I, I bet bet you have. Now, you're designing your own jig heads to go with these? or Yeah, I've had to modify the molds because I'll use a bigger hook with this bait. It is a small bait, but I use a big hook, and they don't seem to mind it. And I prefer a wider gap hook for these big crappie. And uh, and then I have to modify the head and because it don't ex- – I've got to modify the shank in the mold because it don't accept the bigger hooks gotcha. in the molds and to get those big hooks in the smaller heads. So I'm, I'm still working on it and, uh, but I've, I'm making them now, but to make them enough for to sell, I want to get it a more of a production deal going first. Right. Right. Well, everything takes time, particularly yeah. when you're doing it out of your garage. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but how many successful outdoor industries have we seen in our lifetime that started in garages? And yeah. Then, hey, they, they, they get that volume up and they're making a little money and things yeah. are looking good. Some bigger company comes along and wants to buy you out, you know, might and, be all right with me. Hey, maybe, <laughs> maybe I think you're headed that direction. Well, man, I, that's I, what you want. You know, I showed up from my last media camp just a few days ago. My wife had a shipping and receiving uh, station built up for me and really yeah it was really nice so and that helps i mean <laughs> well, you, when, well you tell your wife after come this media camp she she better expand that shipping and re- receiving department <laughs> yeah we might i oh i, I think you're on to something great now i want to ask you when you're using this this uh bait and your crappie fishing what pound test are you using with those baits i have used four pound but i, I break break off uh, fish some thick brush and uh so i've went to a five pound fluorocarbon i thought i was done with fluorocarbon after uh <laughs> bass tournament days but um 
I wanted more than four, and the fluorescent you supposedly can't see as well. So I'm using five-pound sharpshooter sunline fluorocarbon, and I like that. But I like six-pound test monofilament too, and uh, that's as high as I'll go usually, even for the smallmouth. And I've broke some good ones off because of it, but uh, they ain't they don't bite if you use too big a line in that clear water. So exactly, it's if you don't get the bite, you're not going to catch him. So <laughs> that's very true. But I'm I'm here. I'm pleased to hear those weight class lines because I fish in the trout parks in Missouri and use a lot of four-pound lines, sometimes go down to two-pound. But if I'm headed to the river for smallmouth, it's almost always going to be six-pound line. But those jigs are just going to be phenomenal on our stream. I I just almost guarantee it because yeah. I've sort of visualized something like that. I've even taken bigger swim baits and get a razor blade out and trim them down. <laughs> yeah. And, and cut them off in the front. And did take magic markers and color them up. Catch fish. Yeah. Man. Well, but to that length that you're talking about. Yeah. Going, going back to your uh, being a fisherman before a rider. It's the same thing with my baits. I, but trust me, I've caught a lot of big crappie with that bait before I ever even told anybody about it. It works. <laughs> well, uh, it's, of course, me, I'm more of a river fisherman. I'm after trout and smallmouth and largemouth goggle eye and that sort of thing. And when I looked at that bait, I just immediately thought, perfect river bait. Didn't hear you tell me. I've been crappie fishing with them for years, and that's what you designed it for was, was crappie yeah, fishing. Big crappie. Big crappie, now, yeah. Now, it catches little ones, but I target big ones. And, uh, I mean, that's all. I, that's what I'm going after. Uh, I don't care nothing about the little ones, and it's just it's. I got that from my grandfather, and he only fished for big fish. If we pulled up to a brush pile and he caught a, a eight inch or ten inch crappie, we left. We didn't try to even catch another one because he said, if the big one was in there, he would have bit it. He wouldn't have <laughs> let that little one bite. We're gone, and we would go to another brush pile. But we only caught big or took home big crappie and we always took a few home we never caught a lot and but we took a few big crappie home and that's how we did it and moderation he was a man of moderation and uh good good for him i'm kind of that way now but i love it because i i just i leave if if he ain't in there i leave i don't i don't mess with no other fish but them big ones well that's an amazing story well i think you're well on your way to your success with this this bait and wish you well with that but your life man it's an intriguing story and uh, we certainly don't have time today to uh, explore all of your life history, but I hope you'll consider being on another podcast with me l- later on and uh, got some great information. But you've got another idea in the back of your head. You're thinking about starting a magazine. <laughs> and I looked at it uh, today. I'm so intrigued back by it. I hope I'm your first subscriber. You are you my got first paid out subscriber. Of me. Yeah, you are my first paid one. And now it's a motivation to go build it now because I got a subscriber. You, but, you betcha. But, you know, we see magazines come and go all the time, but you've got quite a variety in this, of things in this little magazine. And the thing is, with the background, the history you've got, you said, you know, uh, you were an outdoorsman first and then got enough confidence in yourself, I know how that goes, uh, to start writing and have done very well at it. Now you've got just a sharp, sharp <laughs> magazine with all the digital features that you can utilize these these days. But tell us about the features that are going to be in that magazine. 
Well, um, first off, what are you calling it? Rambling Angler Outdoors. There you um, go. And uh, it's going to be a variety because that's what I've always done. I've never, uh, I mean, I'm a hard bow hunter, bow hunt every year. I choose a three or four week period and then I hunt every day that period during the rut. And that's mainly because, because I could bow hunt in the early days, but the crappie are biting and the smallmouth start biting or the largemouth are hitting czar spooks or squirrel. I want to go squirrel hunting. I mean, and I've always done that. So I've kind of went with the flow of, of the, the time period that we were in. And um, just like in Alaska, you know, you got the seasons to me or the salmon runs. So I can break down the entire summer by the, the runs and the halibut coming in and um, so I've just always wanted to do everything. I've never focused on one, uh, hunting or one fishing thing. Like a lot of people, they're all about whitetail, but there's a lot of time there. I know they enjoy it, but it wouldn't be for me because I'm going to go hunt turkeys and I'm going to go catch crappie. And so it's easy for me to add all of that stuff, uh, in a magazine because I do it. And so I've got a lot of content from years and years of doing it and it's just and i wouldn't want to do it any other way because that's how i am so i want to put uh all types of fit even mule deer hunting which i've never done but i want to do it <laughs> if somebody wants to send an article about it and it's a great adventure and a great hunt i want it in there you know so and i'll put it in there um it's just about the outdoors and passing it on to the next generation and i think more of us need to start doing that and thinking about that because these kids, if you take a kid fishing, because I've already done it and seen it, they love it. Even if they say they don't, you get them in the boat and you put them on a fish, bluegill or anything, and watch them watch not like up. it then. They don't, yeah. I've never seen one put the pole down after they caught a couple. Me either. Never have. I haven't either. <laughs> but this is a new adventure for you, and you're going to probably be looking for some outdoor riders. And I'm going to say right up front, this is a quality magazine. And if you've got quality product, you might get a hold of Ken, and he'll tell you all about it, discuss it with you. And who knows, you might wind up in this magazine. And I can say as a writer, it would be an honor to be in that magazine because it's going to be top uh, quality. Uh, Ken, do you want to put out a whatever, phone number or email or whatever? <laughs> you can so visit me at my website, ramblingangler.com, and contact me there. I'm on Facebook and um, you may can Google my name. I'm probably on there some too from writing all these years, but, um, you can contact me, but rambling angler, I think I've got writers guidelines on that because I got writers that write for my website as well. Right. And, um, just any kind of, uh, outdoor adventure, outdoor hunt. Um, one of my favorites I did was my grandfather taught me a whole bunch of ways to kill, uh, squirrels. And it's the old school stuff like shaking a tail and the and <laughs> throwing a stick or raking the leaves or rubbing two quarters, all those things. It's just old school squirrel hunting. That kind Absolutely. of stuff is what I mean, just stories. I like the stories behind it, not just the how-tos. And that's fine, too, but I like the stories. I, I do, too. And, you know, so many of our outdoor publications have gone that route. It's how-to, you know, and where-to and that sort of thing. I like the good old me and Joe went fishing stories. Yeah, yeah. so many has got away. And that's what I want to do. But I, I can do it all. I want to do all of it. 
So if people want to write about how to catch a crappie in a brush pile, that's fine because uh, everybody does it different. And uh, I'm actually working on a book uh, about red ear fishing now. And to tell a little bit about that, I started a thing called Project Red Ear. And what I did was I started this <laughs> this group on Facebook, or I started contacting people. If they had a big red ear picture, I talked to them. So I'm taking people's input from all over social media and that's what's going to be in this book. It's not because I know how to catch red ear on my lake, and that yeah. is it. I don't know how to catch them in the winter. I don't care because the deer are rutting. You see what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah. Exactly. So I want to have other people have input into this book and and share that with everybody that catches red ear because it's a it's a small group, but yet once you focus all of them in one area, it's, there's more people out there catching them red ear and love catching them than you think. Oh, absolutely. Well, Ken, once again, man, we're running out of time here, but it's been a pleasure to have you on the show. This is the first we've done together, and I certainly hope it's not the last. But, folks, be sure and watch for this rambling angler outdoors. I'm sure he'll be putting it all over uh, social media. And uh, be sure and subscribe. You know, it's only 20 bucks a year for, what, four issues? Four issues. It's going to be uh, packed full of just some marvelous, very well-done outdoor material. Well, I'd like to tell you, Ken McBroom and myself, we're living our outdoor dreams. Yes, we sir. encourage you to get outdoors and live your outdoor dreams as well. I'm Bill Cooper. Captain Brian Wilson runs one of the tightest boat fishing operations in the business. Stainwater Boat Fishing operates out of Jerome, Missouri and the beautiful Missouri Ozarks. They cover most Ozark streams and lakes. You haven't lived until you've searched Ozark waters during the night with Stainwater Boat Fishing while looking for giant gar, carp, and buffalo. Captain Wilson also runs a second boat on Tanicomo Lake. Call today to book a trip with Stainwater Boat Fishing at 573 573- Two six three eight zero one six. Again, that's five seven three two six three eight zero one six. Be sure and shoot straight. The Live in the Dream Outdoors podcast is brought to you by Live in the Dream Outdoor Properties, The Fly Rod Journals, SmokerBuilder.com, Cowtown USA, Westover Farms, Scenic Rivers Taxidermy. Stained Water Bow Fishing, Scenic Rivers Guide Service and Tours, Huzzah Valley Resort, Pico Lures, Devil's Backbone Outfitters, The Fallen Outdoors, Ledco Sinkers and Lure Company, Turnbow Outdoors, J&J Charters, Kaufman Cove, Alaska, Big Ed's Guide Service, Bean Creek Game Calls, Misty Mountain Guide Service, ASO Guides and Outfitters with Ryan Walker, On The Hook TV, and Rich's Famous Burgers. Land ownership is the American dream. Land is the basis of all life. Our wise use of this most precious of resources ensures the survival and growth of free institutions and our American way of life. At Living the Dream Outdoor Properties, we value the traditions and freedoms that land provides us. Every day we seek the solace of a mountain sunrise over traffic jams and smog, the calming silence of a bubbling stream over the sirens of the city, and the quiet of the countryside over the hustle and bustle of the world. We hunt, we fish, we farm, 
We live off the land. It's our mission to help our clients live out their dreams on the land as we do. At Living the Dream Outdoor Properties, we believe that it's not just land, it's a lifestyle. Join us five days a week on Living the Dream Outdoor Podcast as the Living the Dream Outdoor Dream Team explores the most desired outdoor properties in the Midwest and whisks you away to incredible hunting, fishing, and outdoor recreation opportunities. Host Bill Cooper, an inductee of the National Freshwater Fishing Hall of Fame, will be joined by members of the Living the Dream Outdoors team each week as they tell tall tales, unveil tips and tactics, and rub elbows with some of the biggest names in the outdoor world. You'll also find the Living the Dream Outdoors podcast on your favorite social media platforms, including Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, and TikTok.